Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Forbidden archaeology, forgotten history, divination, magic, cryptozoology, UFOs, nature, science, and spirit. All this and more right here on the Main Street Universe Radio Network. The goddess Kuan Yin, Bodhisattva, goddess of mercy and compassion, sometimes referred to as the compassionate rebel or she who hears the cries of humans. She is as well associated with an oolong tea. It's a gift given to help save a sacred temple. Tonight we'll be discussing the different properties of tea right here on Green Magic and Green Medicine with your host, Susan Weed. Join us. Green Medicine. I'm Daniel Michael, the producer, co-creator of Main Street Universe Radio Network, and I'm going to go ahead and bring on our host. Are you there, Susan? Green blessings. Good evening, Daniel. Have I ever told you what a delight it is to do this show with you? Oh, absolutely, and I'm very delighted to have you on board. Thanks. Um, So uh, It's a topic I am personally interested in, so... It's also nice that occasionally, if I can, I can pick your brain for my own purposes, <laughs> as exactly. I call natural medicine and herbal and, uh, healing and learning all the plants, which I'm slowly doing over you know the years. There's so much to study, and I always look- say that it takes seven lifetimes to become an herbalist. <laughs> so go easy with yourself. Because, of course, being an herbalist is not just learning about the plants, is it? We also have to know anatomy and physiology, and we have to know psychology. We have to know, you know, how people are put together, both mentally, physically, and spiritually. We need to know about energy. We need to know about the Tao. We need to know about energy flow. We ourselves have to be healthy, and we have to experiment a lot. So truly, seven lifetimes is probably even an underestimate. And that reminds me of the Native American saying uh, when they do something or make a decision, they're preparing it for seven generations out. <laughs> yes, exactly. And 
I don't mean literally that it has to be hereditary. I think that um, once we gain skill in something, we certainly can hold on to that possibility and draw from our deep memories. I know when I asked to have a guide who lived 10,000 years ago, that was very easily done. And then I got bold and asked for a guide who lived 30,000 years ago, and that was very easily done, too. And so those guides, you know, give me real windows on ancient understanding and how we did live with the plants, what it was like before we cultivated our food, as well as what it was like after we cultivated that. And I think I may have mentioned, but it certainly bears mentioning again, that so far as we can tell from DNA evidence, Brugmansia is the oldest cultivated plant. And it's probably been cultivated for about 30,000 years. And that sets it well back of any food plants. It is a very powerful psychoactive plant. And um, back when we said that um, we had cultivated food for about 10,000 years, at this point we're actually thinking about 15,000 years, um, depending on where we're looking at, that changing our minds was three times more important than filling our bellies, but now I'd have to say that it's at least twice as important Mm. as filling our bellies. And so that's why um, we are focusing on power plants. I got a letter from a student today, and she said something about, you know, her health concerns, and she kind of ended the letter by saying, and don't even ask me to because I'm not giving up my coffee. (laughs) That's what we've been talking about. (laughs) Which is, you know, we've been talking about not just the health benefits of coffee, but we've been talking about the difference between coffee and caffeine. That while coffee contains caffeine, studies that just look at caffeine and products that just have added caffeine are probably not going to give us the kinds of benefits that we get from actually drinking coffee. And this is... People look at me and they say, are you seriously telling me that that coffee is a health food? And the answer is yes. And the Food and Drug Administration is very concerned about the growing number of products that contain caffeine. I think there is now chewing, caffeinated chewing gum. Yes, I've seen it. Energy gum, they call it. Yes, and they're, they're concerned. They said that at the point at which they said that it was okay to have caffeine in products was, I think, something like 80 years ago that they approved that. And it was for, of course, soft drinks that they could put caffeine in soft drinks. They said, we never imagined. I think they said there's something like over 500 different products that now contain caffeine. Mm. So they're actually opening up an investigation into it. So where our show is, in, in fact, quite timely, here in the the latter part of uh, 2013 that that we're making a distinction between drinking a caffeinated beverage and actually drinking coffee. And we also talked about how if what we're calling coffee is really a glass of very highly sweetened milk with some coffee flavor, that that's not what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, that That we're really talking about the coffee... And I have tried to track down um, studies that would show if there's any difference in terms of tea. 
like, what, you know, what should you put in your tea? Should you just have your tea neat? Now, it's true when I'm drinking tea with food, like if I'm eating Chinese food or Japanese food and I'm having black tea or green tea, it would really never occur to me to sweeten it. It seems just right to have it like that. But if I want to have like a cup of Earl Grey tea, just as a kind of mm, treat and it's that time of the day to slow down and treat myself nice, I really want milk and honey in it. So let's look into some things about tea. I love that you started with Quan Yin. That is so beautiful. And Quan Yin, of course, is a goddess of the places where tea originates, Mm -hmm. which is in Asia. Camilla sinensis. And people who grow camellias say, is it really, is tea related to these camellias that I'm growing? And the answer is yes. And just like those camellias, it's not frost-hardy. So the growing and the cultivation of tea is restricted to the tropical areas of the world, and the tropical areas of Asia as well, where it doesn't freeze. Or if it does, it's such a light frost that the tea bushes can be protected. You told us a great story about um, the goat herd watching the goat eat the coffee beans, right? Yes. And um, then taking that um, those coffee beans back and using them for the good of people. We similarly think that tea was first used as medicine and then became a popular drink. So it's interesting to me the sense of kind of the full turn of the spiral that coffee started out as a medicine, tea started out as a medicine. They have become so popular that 80% of the world's population has a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or more on a daily basis. And yet now we're kind of spiraling back and saying, hey, guess what? They're medicine. It's not just the thing you drink. It's actually a medicine. The first recorded drinking of tea dates to about a thousand years BC or about 3,000 years ago. We have a fairly solid record of people actually harvesting the leaves of the Camellia sinensis and brewing them. And by 2,000 years ago, we have medical texts that are telling us that drinking tea um, is very helpful for people who want to think better. We were Mm -hmm. also mentioning that about coffee, right? That one of the reasons that people drink coffee and tea is that it enhances our ability to think and to apply ourselves. We know that the mind loves to wander. Yes. 
that you sit down to get started on one task and suddenly you find yourself doing several other things. And both coffee and tea really help us to focus in. I was amused to discover that tea drinking in England is actually very new. You know, to, it, it's kind of like we get these national story, food stories in our mind, like Italian food. That's well, that's pizza and spaghetti with tomato sauce, you know, or pasta with tomato cookies, sauce. another one. It's actually invented in America, and in Japan it's called the American fortune cookie. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and yet we think, oh, yes, it's the Chinese fortune cookie. Yeah. Whereas the noodles come from China and the tomatoes come from South America. So the same thing with, you know, England, of course, can't grow tea. It's certainly not in the tropics. And although we, we associate English people with having a cup of tea anytime things tend to get rougher at any time at all, and of course having tea, and uh, I found that um, in some places tea now stands in for what I call dinner. Mm. If you're invited for tea, you're not really invited to drink, um, you know, the leaves of Camellia sinensis at 4 o'clock with some cake. You're actually being invited to stay for the evening meal. But tea is so associated now with with uh, the English and with uh, their culture. Of course, when tea was first taken from the tropic, tropics to other parts of the world, it was an incredible luxury item. And um, in a way, this sets it apart from coffee because coffee didn't first come as a real luxury thing. And coffee, we mentioned last week, has been associated with coffee houses, which are places of political unrest. Mm. And it wasn't the coffee that the colonists threw back in the ocean. It was the tea that they threw back in the ocean because the tea was associated with the upper classes, the elite, those who had the money. And as tea became a little more accessible, it then became a very special brew that was served, especially in um, the early colonial America, at wakes and weddings and um, corn chuckings and quilting bees and things like that. It would be kind of like today, like, the kind of place where we'd bring out the champagne, they would bring out the tea. What a special way to think of tea. And, um, you know, I also think about people in India drinking tea. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, like the story that I have in my head is that the people in England started drinking tea because they were in India. And they picked it up from them. But apparently, when I look into the history of it, that's not true. Mm. That that the English brought tea drinking to India. Mm. And that it was only the anglicized Indians that drank tea. And they, of course, were not necessarily smiled upon. And then the they do grow tea in India, not all of India, but part of India, because part of it's in the tropics. And so the India Tea Board launched in the 1950s, just about 60 years ago, a advertising campaign, a very successful advertising campaign, to make tea 
the national beverage of India. Hmm. So once again, the little stories that I have in my mind that I tell myself uh, must be revised <laughs> in the face of the actual facts of it. The Chinese character for tea, and we're you know we're talking about um, a herb here that who really got started in China and spread from China out, but there are different varieties of Chinese, right? Mm-hmm. So if you say to someone, do you speak Chinese, they will usually answer with a question. And it will be, oh, do you mean Cantonese, do you mean Mandarin, and so on. So the character for the dried leaves of Camellia sinensis is pronounced differently in different dialects. In the most of the dialects of Chinese, it is pronounced Cha or Chai. But in the central coast of China and in Southeast Asia, it is pronounced Tea or Te. And so that's why we hear both of these terms for it, right? Mm-hmm. And I always wondered about that. And I, um, there's lots of people of uh, Indian descent around here where I live and working in a store that I used to work in a store part-time and sometimes they would all ask, laugh when you somebody would ask for a chai tea because they're like, you're asking for tea twice. <laughs> there <laughs> you go. <laughs> then they even say, even I do it. They're like, even I do it now. <laughs> I say chai tea. <laughs> I'm just so used to hearing it. <laughs> right. It's it's like shiitake mushroom. Shiitake already contains the word mushroom. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We don't really need it at all. I was also quite fascinated to discover that um, Camellia sinensis is evergreen. So it's a crop that basically can be harvested any day of the year. I, I wanted to get into that because this is a question about tea that I thought I'd throw out to you and that... A lot of people think that the different white, green, and black are actually different plants. They can be, but it's actually things picked at different times. Maybe if you could comment on that a little bit. That is what I have heard, too. So, from the textbook now, teas are divided into categories based on how they are processed. And there are, at a minimum, six categories. White, yellow, green, oolong, black tea, which is called red tea in China, Mm. and post-fermented tea, or black tea in China. So, as soon as you start picking the camellia leaves, they begin to wilt and unless they are immediately dried, they will also begin to die. And this oxidation is going to turn the leaves darker and darker as the chlorophyll breaks down and tannins are released. This is an enzymatic oxidation process that occurs naturally in the tea leaves, and it is a kind of fermentation caused by the plant's intracellular enzymes. In other words, the enzymes that are present in the tea leaves themselves cause 
a very rapid kind of fermentation as soon as they are picked. And basically, the different teas are processed by halting this process. And the things that the thing that is most effective at stopping this process is heat. Hmm. But the heat is not necessarily the heat of drying it. So in some teas, they are, like in the white tea, they're heated very quickly to stop this enzymatic process from happening. So the leaf doesn't darken and it retains a very light color and it's also a very young leaf. But it's not necessarily dried really rapidly. Whereas in the black tea, it is both allowed to ferment for a longer amount of time, but once the heat is applied to stop the fermentation, it's applied along with the heat that dries it, so those processes happen simultaneously at the other end of the color spectrum. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's yeah. all the when and process and, and all of that, because some people will argue blue in the face like it's an entirely different plant. I'm like, well, there are different plants, but it's about, like, as you're saying, a process a phase when it's picked, et cetera, et cetera, and what it goes through. Yes, and it because of this, I mean, it's a plant that provides a large amount of the world with their daily beverage, and a beverage which contains caffeine, which we've been talking about, which has some very beneficial effects, and is also addictive. You know, tea is certainly more mildly addictive than coffee is, but there's that once you get into drinking these caffeinated beverages, you want them. And if you don't have them, you feel kind of fuzzy and foggy. And they not only do make you more mentally alert, but the addictive part of it makes you feel not mentally alert if you don't have it. So as with most power plants, right, not overdoing it, not pushing yourself over into over that addictive edge is part of the subtlety of working with the plant and really getting the best that we can out of the plant. Most teas that are sold in the United States are blends. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of like wine that most people are aware of that um, wine is often a blend of different grapes. But, of course, then there's the varietals, the ones that are just made from a particular grape, and just so with tea. It gets very interesting, very picky, very unique, and it can get very, very pricey as well. I have never been quite sure whether or not this little article that I read was tongue-in-cheek and was pulling my leg or not. But if it was a leg pull, they have successfully stretched me because they said that they were advertising in China for virgins who could be certified as virgins to <laughs> pick tea, right? 
and they were going to sell it at this extremely fancy price as virgin virgin picked tea. Wow. And it's just the kind of thing that could be done. Right? It, it, because people get get into their tea that much. And how wonderful. That's just how we should relate to a power plant. It should become a very special, very important thing to us. Now, tea, like coffee and chocolate, which we'll be talking about, is available in what's called fair trade. And you just look for the fair trade logo on your coffee or your tea or your chocolate. And what that means is that the people who are actually growing and harvesting the coffee, the tea, or the chocolate are getting a fair share of the profit. This is, I'm told, not necessarily true of the large commercial um, coffees, teas, and chocolates that are available for sale. That frequently the actual producers um, do not even get a living wage. And I think that uh, for me, when I'm working with a power plant, I want to feel the power of that plant and the strength of that plant all the way back to the earth that it grew in, if it's not a plant that I can personally grow. Tea is really receptive to flavors and smells. This is great, right? You can go into a store and you can find like 20 different flavors of tea. However, it can be a nightmare to the person who is trying to process store and transport tea because it means anything that the tea is around is going to pick up that flavor and that odor. Mm. Some of the fanciest teas that I've had which have been gifts to me have come in vacuum-packed foil packages. I've been in tea shops and there's actually a really great one that just opened up literally down the street um, here. I can walk right to it. And some of it is so exotic, You all, it, it's going to sound strange. It almost smells like you're in a tobacco store. <laughs> it's got yes. some really interesting aromas in there going on. <laughs> yes, because the tea is so open to that. It's like the tea likes to buddy up with other flavors, right, such as the very famous, you know, Earl Grey's tea. One of my favorite. With, oh, you know, flavored with a bergamot or jasmine tea, in which you, you know, jasmine's not really that safe to eat, but you throw a few jasmine blossoms in with your tea, you feel like you're drinking jasmine tea. And you've made it safe. So there is certainly more, a lot, lot more that we can say about tea. And I just so enjoy the pace that you and I um, go at for this show. Um, many times on radios you feel that you have to have, you know, this really like kind of hyper pace, and I think it's so suited to the material as well. And the the time of night, I hope that people are, are, are hanging out, drinking a cup of tea or coffee or herb tea, whatever you're enjoying, and enjoying this show. And we're going to uh, continue next week, and really focus in, again, on the specific 
health benefits of tea, the phytochemicals that are in tea, the epigallocatechin gallate, um, how we get it, what it does for us, um, of the relationship between tea and cancer, um, what kinds of studies are being done, lots of interesting things going on with tea. So enjoy yourself, everybody, until um, the two of us get back here (laughs) next week to talk to you more. And, you know, if you haven't heard of Kuan Yin before, if tonight was your, that little story was your first introduction to Kuan Yin, may I urge you to um, explore that a little bit. She's a very, very lovely goddess. She's often been compared to the Virgin Mary, um, partly because women pray both to the Virgin Mary and to Kuan Yin if they want a child. I know that there are lots and lots of Italian children named Mario and Marie because they were a gift from the Virgin Mary. And I wonder if the same kind of thing goes on in areas where Kuan Yin is prayed to for children. I wonder if the children get named after Kuan Yin as well. That would be an interesting thing to find out, wouldn't it? Yeah. (laughs) That was easy for me because that's the main goddess in my eclectic pantheon, actually, that called to me the most. (laughs) Ah. I I am very partial to her as well, and she is pouring out her wonderful water of life on the cover of my newest book down there. So, uh, listeners, I guess I still have a couple of seconds to invite you to come visit me at SusanWeed.com. And I keep the sun in Susan, uh, but we own SusanWeed.com and SusanWeed.com. So spell it or misspell it. Come and visit. You'll find lots of fun things at my website, including my free weekly e where you'll find a wonderful herbal 